lifetimes of listening. Seeing a bad lie for sure. I, I like the less expensive ones because I, then I get a good quantity of them. The magic is there. The, the personalities all jive. There are bands that last forever. I think my love of music really came from my father. To this day, it's like the one way I connect with my dad now. June 17th, 1984, Prince was releasing the Purple Rain album. I knew that it was going to be a big deal in my life, not just as a musician, but as a person in general. Lifetimes of Listening. This is Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory podcast. It's an outgrowth of the Arizona Musical Memory Archive. I'm Dan Cruz, an alum of the University of Arizona Fred Fox School of Music. Also just happened to be a part-time radio announcer at the University of Arizona's NPR affiliate radio station. And I'm Brian Moon, an associate professor of practice and coordinator for music and general education at the University of Arizona's School of Music. So in brief, what can you expect to hear on this program? Well, things like this. As a musician, I've always relied on my musical memories and, and um, reference points of sound. At that moment, all sound left me. That's a brief clip from an interview that we're going to play more of later in this episode. Our aim is to document, record, archive, and study the musical memories that are such an important part of people's lives. People will tell us these important musical memories that have stayed with them over time and have shaped and given meaning to their, to their memories. And we'll gather these and we post them on our Lifetimes of Listening website. Our topic for today is aging, death, grieving, loss. Heavy stuff. Um, As it turns out, music becomes tied up in these complex emotions. And so many people have shared with us stories that bring aspects of death and loss and grieving into a musical memory. I've had uh, experiences like this. For, For me, when I was in college, I sang in the performance of the Brahms German Requiem. And during the practice and rehearsals leading up to that, I experienced a loss of an acquaintance. And in my head, that peace and death and loss became so tied up um, in in the way that I experience grief that I've listened to that piece dozens of times when I've lost people through my life. And I've had a similar experience. I I had the unfortunate uh, uh, experience of losing my wife of some 41 years uh, to cancer about six years ago. Uh, during the period of time when we were beginning to see that it likely would be a terminal situation, I just happened to come across this real sweet piece of music by, of all people, Kevin Eubanks, the uh, former musical director for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. And somehow the piece of music somehow spoke to me about relationship, connection, maybe romance, companionship, and was a real comfort to me uh, in the in the months leading up to my wife's passing and in uh, the times since then. So that's, that's another example of how music and grief can be so tied up with one another. Today, we've got a couple of special guests on our program to discuss the relationship of music to aging, death, and loss. We had the opportunity to speak with them in Austin, Texas, on the occasion of South by Southwest at a special three-day event at the University of Arizona's Wonder House, which highlighted achievements of the university in a variety of fields, science, technology, human behavior, and the arts. And that interview with them is coming up next.
Welcome, we're here at South by Southwest um, for the University of Arizona's Wonder House. And I'm very grateful today that Dan and I are sitting down with Mary Frances O'Connor and Corey Floyd. Uh, Mary Frances O'Connor is an associate professor in, the, uh, in psychology at the University of Arizona and Corey Floyd's a professor uh, in communications. And um, one thing that strikes me as a person who has dabbled in your extensive publications uh, and only looked at the public facing side of it is that you uh, both are incredibly capable of communicating intensely evidence-based research into ways that apply to human life and, and, and so that anybody can immediately put that into their lives in a way that I find really impressive and I'm very grateful for as a human and as a scholar. I, I just really am thankful for, for that skill that you have. Um, Mary Frances, wh wh what is your research area, however you would choose to characterize it? Well, primarily, I study bereavement, the death of a loved one and, and all the different kinds of grief that come along. So I direct what's called the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab, the GLASS Lab. And really, I'm interested in how grief affects the brain and the body. And a lot of how we get to that information is through functional neuroimaging, so imaging scans, but also blood tests and, you know, EKGs, but frankly, also through clinical interviews, just really delving into what grief feels like for people, because uh, it's such an individual response. Corey, would, same question to you. Would you, how, how do you characterize your research interests? Sure, I study the communication of affection in personal relationships and in particular I'm interested in why it feels good to us and what it does for us. Very often when people are distressed they will turn to a loved one and ask for affection or they'll reach out and provide it and it actually makes them feel better and many of us have had that experience of being in a state of stress and getting a hug from somebody that we care about. And it doesn't just make us feel better mentally or psychologically, it makes us feel better physically. So I'm interested in what happens in the body that produces that kind of stress alleviating effect. Uh, it's sort of the message that affection is good for us under certain parameters. And of course, the flip side of that coin is that when we don't have that connection in our lives, when we feel lonely, when we feel disconnected from others, we suffer from that. And so I'm really interested in understanding that dynamic between social connection and the body. We can't neglect to mention your recently published book, Mary Frances. Just tell us a bit about that, please. Well, the book is called The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. And it really is a, a book for the general public that takes the research that I dabble in day in and day out, the articles that I'm reading and writing, the research studies, and thinks about how a person might apply that to their own life. You know, if, if you know this information about the science of, uh, of bereavement, uh, the, the grief research that's out there, how might you interpret your own experiences? Uh, so it's really meant to be for everyone. So I guess our next question is, our project is all about music and people's musical memories. So let me just ask whether either or both of you have a sense of whether your work in grief and yours, Corey, in connection and affection and so forth has a relationship or a connection to the whole thing of music. 
Does music play a role in grief? Does music play a role in connection between people? Can you comment on that? I think it certainly plays a role in connection, among other reasons, because we often listen to and enjoy music together. So we consume that medium and enjoy it and talk about it and reflect on it and are affected by it in community often and we might talk about our favorite songs or we might talk about an experience at a performance uh, and those kinds of memories stick with us not just because of the enjoyment of the medium but also because of the enjoyment of the connection that goes with it. You know, Corey, I think about when people are dancing, that's such a great example of really enjoying music together, not just psychologically, but really being physically. Physically, that's right. They're entrained in that way, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. yeah. You think of how many, how many couples, too, have a song that they would call our song. Our song, that's right. <laughs> I certainly have had that in my life. Same. Yeah, and that becomes more than just the enjoyment of that song. It really takes on a whole... Well, it takes on a representation of its own within the relationship. It becomes, like we were talking about yesterday, something that is ours now. And we connect the value and the meaning of our relationship to that particular song. When people are experiencing grief, which tends to be such an intense and overwhelming experience for a lot of people. People describe it as the worst they've ever felt. And I, I sometimes feel like it's as though the volume got turned up on whatever it was, whatever it is that you're feeling. Because grief often feels very different from what people are expecting it to feel, I think. Um, it comes with a full range of experiences from, you know, disbelief and confusion and disorientation to sadness and yearning, but also blame and guilt and anger, uh, things we maybe don't usually associate with grief. And people feel often almost compelled to express what they're experiencing. It is so much a part of the moment to moment for them when they're, when they're acutely grieving that music is one of the ways that we've been expressing grief through millennia, through, you know, for as long as we can make music, I think. Uh, and so, you know, uh, there are so many sad songs, uh, I think is the line. Um, and, and that just feels like a, a natural way to process what's happening for folks. Yeah, yeah. I read an article, came across an article recently, this is slightly off track. The title of the article is, Why Do We Like listening to sad songs. Yes. And I think part of what you're saying is that in the in the instance of grief, music, as sad as it can make us even intensify the sadness, helps us to work through things, helps us to process that in some way. And I think it's interesting because when we are not currently in a state of grief, it can help to remind us of close connections that we have had with people by sort of putting us back in that state. Uh, but I also think, in a funny sort of way, it gives us the ability to tolerate really strong emotions, right? Um, with a song, there is there is an end to the song, and, and, and so you can sort of go in and out of it. And that is something 
greeting people have a lot of difficulty learning early on to sort of be in it and then be just in everyday life again, sort of back and forth. Yeah. So again, one other question, slightly off track. Do either of you consider yourselves musical? Do you play an instrument? Do you sing? I was a music minor in college. Yeah, I went to college on a voice scholarship. Wow. So I sang and um, played some piano, and uh, music's been a part of my life my entire growing up. And maybe not surprisingly, I actually started college as a music major. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, it was really because in my first year I took a gen ed course that I had to take, uh, Intro to Neuroscience, and I just... I was bitten. I just got so interested in it. And my clarinet teacher at one point said to me in that in that freshman year, he said, you know, we spend more time talking about how the brain learns music than we spend playing. <laughs> and I think he recognized perhaps my heart was somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So what we want to do next is share with you these three interviews that Brian and I have conducted. <clears throat> In each case, the interviews were probably 10, 20, 25 minutes long, but we've edited them down to these short stories, these short musical memories, the first of which Brian will introduce and then share it with you. This first interview is, uh, as full disclosure, is my father-in-law, and he um, sat down with me and gave me uh, an extensive, extensive interview for a long, long time that uh, that will be important for from his great great grandchildren, I hope, um, but uh, um, he he had a, a, a very interesting experience um, and and a kind of career change late in life, and that led to him becoming a hospice chaplain. Anyway, after I retired, I, I went to seminary. I became an ordained minister. In seminary, I was a volunteer. They gave me the tough cookies, the the, the, the tough guys that. Didn't want any of that chaplain and that religious BS. Just get out of here. I don't want that. Well, there was this one patient. That I'll never forget this. He was an old. He was in his 80s. Well, in fact, he was a World War II veteran. He'd been in the Navy in the South Pacific. He'd been on one ship that got sunk and another ship that just about got sunk. But he and he got when the war came to the end. He he got discharged. When I got to know him, he opened up to me. We became good friends. He was saying that he'd wished he'd stayed in the Navy. That was his big regret. He just just loved the Navy, just dreamed about the Navy. One day I got a call at work, and they said, the hospice office, they said, if you want to see him, you better go see him now because he's actively dying. So I just dropped everything, jumped from my car, and took off to the facility. And I'm driving, I'm going like, I'm just a new person here. I've never been around anybody actually dying in, in hospice, so I'm, I'm not sure exactly what to do. <laughs> my, my little cassette player on my, in my car, that's, I had an Enya tape. I loved Enya. Yeah. And I put that in, and she, started, she was singing Sail Away. Sail away, sail away. Yeah, yeah. And I just went, oh, my goodness, that's it. <laughs> that's what I'm... So I got to his room, and he was just kind of in and out of consciousness and went over, and he held my hand. And I just said, it's okay. Everything's okay. And I said, would you like to hear some music? He goes, yeah. He had it, His daughter had a little boom box there for him. So I put that in you, and, and started, she sang Sail Away. And I just said, I, I, was, I just kind of whispered the words to him. Was, sail away, sail away. It's okay. It's okay, sailor, sail away. He fell asleep. 
and I just said, oh my goodness, this is perfect. This is, what a way for him to leave this mortal plane. It was something that really touched me, and I think about often. If nothing else, I just hope that it eased him, because there was some fear. He told me that he was afraid of dying, and he he wasn't so much afraid of what happened after. It was just the dying process was scary. I thought about that this morning. It just kind of it, it brings up emotions for me. You know, spending some time with Corey, the piece of that that really stands out for me is holding his hand. Just the comfort that comes with knowing another human being is there with you, holding you in, in what has to be one of the most intimate and difficult moments. I'm just really struck by that. Yeah, and the music provided entree yes. to that. One of the things that we know about touch is that it sometimes takes a certain level of emotional intensity to allow us to touch other people uh, that in ways that we wouldn't normally, in ways that, that are not typical for us. But when the level of emotional intensity is sufficient, uh, then it provides that, that, that license to reach out and connect that way. And in this case, I think the music, the lyric and, and the, the song itself provided that for, for them. And so interesting that it provided comfort for the sailor who was dying, but also provided comfort for this person who was really trying to navigate how do I how do I approach death? How do what's my role here? Um, the 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 way that music can give us. Uh, permission also to engage in some deep emotion because that artist that musician was able to touch into something so deep and express it that gives us a, a reason to connect with our own emotion and the emotion of those around us I think the communal nature of music is remarkable at, at that time Brent was um, brand new in seminary was an intern as a as a chaplain, and so what, he was a uh, an adult uh, and had had just retired as a successful software salesperson, and then he goes in and finds himself in the hospital uh, with a with a dying man that he'd grown close to, and um, the 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 power of that transition and knowing him, and he he's a carries himself in a way that he's a hail fellow well met sort of person and um, would have carried an authority that that people would have assumed he knew what he was doing yeah. and, and and yet he was lost and the music music gave him the comfort to try something that he might not have uh, I was also struck by the quite coincidental hearing this piece of music he said on the way to the hospice yeah. facility right and it worked for an artist that he liked and appreciated that seemed to give him permission to make a stronger connection with the, you know, he, he felt befuddled. How am I going to handle this? The music provided an avenue for him to, uh, to make a stronger connection at a, at a moment that was important for him and for the person he was visiting, the dying man. It did. It started, the, it started the conversation for him. It gave him license to say, I want to connect with you in a way that maybe I wouldn't normally. But in this extraordinary moment and given this extraordinary lyric and melody and what that does to us physically and emotionally, here's, that's going to be my entry. 
And the brain, to me, is so fascinating that it makes all of these associations, doesn't it, with you know memories and sights and sounds and and uh, ways we might behave and people we've known. So he was really connecting all of those pieces together in that moment. I think often why art is so powerful is it really taps into the associations without giving us sort of a linear story or or an explanation or a device even, you know. It just taps into the associations and kind of holds us then in that place where so many pieces that are important, that are meaningful, are are around us, that we're, we're being held in that space, uh, able to sort of tolerate that moment differently. Yeah, yeah. As, as we transition to the next interview, I'm noticing that the word that I'm hearing spoken as much today as any word, and that I heard yesterday as much, was the word connection. And this, uh, this interview that I conducted with the woman who happens to be a neighbor of mine, but who, frankly, I didn't know that well until she said, oh, sure, I'll, I'll be one of your interview subjects. She told me this wonderful story about a connection with her father that's based in music, that's, that music is central to that, and then how that played, over, played out over not only her childhood, but into his later years and his dying and so forth. Then here's her story. I'm Whitney Morgan. I'm a Tucson resident and a lifelong music lover. Yeah, I think my love of music really came from my father. From a very early age, he would take me out driving in his car, just me and him, and we'd listen to music and we'd talk. Pretty much all my musical memories from childhood spring from my relationship with my father. One thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, because I recently lost my dad a couple of years ago, and he um, unfortunately had dementia, like so many people who have experience of losing their parents before they're gone. But when I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do was to have my dad sing um, Chantilly Lace by the Big Bopper. And he would just do the whole thing, you know, all the voices and the inflections. And I would giggle and then I'd pester him to do it again. And it was just something that that was a constant refrain, you know, with my dad. And in the last year of his life, when I would visit him, I would put on songs and I'd sing to him. And it, it was really the only way I could connect with him at the end. And I would see him kind of emerge. He would smile, he would tap his hands, he would be soothed by the music. And at the very end, when things were, were really bad, I, I put on Chantilly Lace and I said, okay, dad, this is, this is our song. I sang it to him and the minute he heard it, he just laughed. <laughs> and it had been so long since I'd heard my dad laugh. To this day, it's like the one way I connect with my dad now. I think that when you lose a parent, at least for me, you feel uprooted, like you've lost your place in the world. That's how I felt. And so to to access those memories and even from when I was a little girl, you know, back so long ago, it it allows me to feel rooted again, like I have a place in the world. This feeling of that's such a great description. Having lost your roots, I, I also, when my father passed away, my mother had passed away many years before, and I was 
not expecting to feel so uprooted by the fact of having no parents, right? It wasn't just losing my dad, it was that I had no parents. And I think the way she describes that, there is still a way that we continue to carry their absence with us, that we continue to uh, be in the world perceiving the world because a part of them is encoded in our brain, quite physically encoded in our brain, quite literally encoded in our brain, that we perceive the world differently because they loved us, because we loved them. And I think she so beautifully captures that here. Uh, The memories of being with them, not just a conversation, but listening to them and giggling with them. And it's how we bring them forward with us, even when they are no longer on this mortal plane. I was really struck by her description of starting to play that song and then her father starting to giggle. And it reminded me that because they had built so many memories around that song prior, earlier in their lives, that that hearing that song, having that memory invoked, didn't just invoke cognitive representations of experiences in the past, or even emotional representations, but actually visceral responses, that hearing that tune put them in a particular visceral state that maybe harkens back to times when they felt connected before. And that will be something that she can carry with her in her life. When she hears that song, it not only will bring back those memories, it will literally make her feel physically a sense of connection to her father. And that's a beautiful thing. When uh, In the more extended interview, she discusses um, when he was in full dementia, uh, and relatively uh, uh, unable to move and, and, and engage in the world, um, he, he had been a dancer, and they had danced together, and she played a song that, uh, that sh- and he got up and he danced as if he was, you know, 30 years younger, and spun around the room, and, uh, and that, you know, the, it's a, a very powerful way that music has connected the two of yeah. them. And so, what, so what I'm hearing is I'm hearing that there's that the musical connection to people at important points in their lives, for example, when they're grieving or when they're dying, uh, it has a physical component, has a cognitive component, it has a heart component, it has a connection component. Um, yeah, I was, I was, I was, it was such a privilege to spend this half an hour interviewing my neighbor, who, I, again, I hardly know, and she revealed this really wonderful story. One of the things that Brian and I have discovered, a bit off track here, is that in this work that we're doing in interviewing people about musical memories, it gives them permission to share very intimate things that they would not even consider. If you walked up to a stranger and said, tell me a story that's deeply personal from your life, they'd say, who are you? If you said and said, tell me a story about some time when music meant something to you, out comes this, this type of thing. Completely unexpected for me Once to again, it's license. It right. starts a conversation in a way that few other experiences do. Yeah. So that's a great representation of that. And I'm so struck that, you know, there is a lot known about music and dementia, the important connecting to a time in one's life or between people. And we think of memories as, you know, all being in the brain, right? We think of it as a, a cognitive thing, so it's all in the brain. But 
We know from embodied cognition that doesn't happen in a vacuum, that memories are really connected to this visceral state that you were talking about, this um, physical instantiation of, of both being in your own body, whether that's dancing or singing or playing, but also of being in, in physical proximity with others, right? Dancing with them or, or playing and giggling with them. Yeah. I, I, I'm often struck by the temporality of music and um, it, you know so there's the beginning and an end so there's the processing the feeling in the in the moment as you as you referenced earlier but there's also um, the memory of uh, of the time uh, the memory of the time is encoded in the sound in a way that that it that there, there is something there's a there's a connection there because of the way that listening to that same music later, brings you back to the time quite literally where because music only exists in time it only is a you know it, it is not a thing that is on a page it is not a thing that is in the sound it is something blended in between an, an ephemeral ineffable kind of thing and and um and and so uh so interview number three is one that brian and i were both present for if you are a classical musician, you know who David Harrington is. You you are, are admire the work of the Cronus Quartet. Or their thirty some odd CDs. Um, he has um, a very powerful story that we'd like to share with you. I'm David Harrington, founder, violinist, artistic director with Cronus uh, Quartet. Easter Sunday, April sixteenth, nineteen ninety five. Our son Adam drove our daughter Bonnie and Regan, my wife, to the summit of Mount Diablo because he had read that it had the second most panoramic view in the world other than Mount Kilimanjaro. The kids threw a snowball at each other and we headed up the hill from the parking lot to the summit. Adam looked back and the next thing we knew he was dead. And the reason I'm talking about this is that as a musician, I've always relied on my musical memories and, and um, reference points of sound. At that moment, all sound left me. It was months years and it happened one sound at a time one um, experience at a time and the musical community my family my friends helped put me back together as a musician I brought up that particular event because it uh, it was when I, I lost music inside that's when I was most aware I would say of of the complexity of the mosaic of the inner world of sound this is so powerful uh, certainly the experience but his description of it and I think it is truly difficult to imagine grief until you experience it the utter disorientation of how the world could possibly work 
and even just so much disorientation that you cannot perceive parts of the world, that the, that the confusion is just so great that you, you may see your loved one where they, you know in reality they don't exist. You may feel you need to search for them. These are strange experiences that, that people are not anticipating. And the depth and just intensity of emotion is remarkable. I think so many people have an experience around music. I've had numerous people tell me that they could no longer listen to music after a loved one had died, sometimes for months, sometimes for years. And it varies from feeling that they shouldn't be allowed to listen to music because their loved one can no longer listen to music, to, on the other hand, just feeling that music has an intensity of emotion with it that they cannot bear in this moment where they're just rubbed raw. And, and you, you wouldn't think of that as being a part of grief, but we hear it so much that that connection is really deep. It seems to me that in that moment, the body almost goes into survival mode. I was thinking about his description of losing sound, and I was thinking of the metaphor of uh, creating tunnel vision such that so much of our sensory inputs are, are muted during that time uh, and the body and the brain are redirecting resources to just keeping us going in that moment. But so many other things become secondary or tertiary and we're no longer paying attention to them. And that certainly includes things in which we find meaning and enjoyment, music or art or... Uh, or even social connection, thinking about people who are grieving and they become recluse during that time, instead of reaching out and, and taking advantage of the community around them. And it's so true that many people experience that at least part of grief is very private, that they do want to withdraw. And I think for those of us who are, you know, caring for someone who's grieving, I think giving both the flexibility of allowing that to be true while letting them know that you are still here. So I, I teach a psychology of death and loss course, and you know many of those students have experienced profound loss already or have had friends who've experienced profound loss, and they will describe this intuitive way that they may go driving with someone who is, who is grieving because they don't have to talk but they are there with them in the, in the car. Uh, so this way of being present without intruding, I think can be, as he describes in this experience, a piece of the road back to being among the living, of understanding what it is to live now while carrying this tremendous yeah. weight. I was struck by the fact that <clears throat> the other stories are about music coming into one's whatever, emotional state, psychological, cognitive state, and he, David Harrington, for whom music is central to his day-to-day -day life, the exact opposite occurs, that music disappears, sound and music disappear for him because they are his anchor. And having lost his son in whatever tragic, sudden, unexpected way, turns off the music for some period of time. It's really uh, it's fascinating. And, and the, the disconnect, the, the powerful disconnect between, I mean, um, I... I I'm fortunate enough to be a parent and and can imagine nothing worse than than the loss of a child and the powerful way that that 
his whole life having revolved around sound uh, and and the extent the extended 30 minute long interview that that uh, David Harrington graciously gave us uh, is monumentally inspiring just in its own it, it is uh, is worthy of listening but but the way that sound was so intrinsic to his life and then and it was and it's so lost in the same way that 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 he was cut off from his son and and cut off from from all things and i i i i, I um i i i'm just overcome uh in in many ways just thinking about thinking about that and the ways that um when when I uh, I, my father passed away March 1st 2020 Um, thankfully I got a a funeral in before the world shut down um, and and that was a a blessing Um, my whole adult life when I have experienced grief and loss I found solace in certain pieces of music and um, the combination of my dad dying um, the I, I no longer felt solace in the same music. And in fact, uh, after a brief moment searching frantically, thinking, oh, music will fix this, um, the only music that, that I could listen to was heavy metal. Was, <laughs> I, like, I normally, the Brahms, the Brahms German Requiem was my go-to for grief and, uh, and, and loss. And and feeling just cut off and then suddenly it's like nope it's gonna be I'm gonna listen to ACDC and I'm gonna take a run even though my body can no longer handle jogging <laughs> it's like I'm gonna I, I needed uh, anyway that uh, I, I I've I've never experienced anything close to what David Harrington has um, and and I can't imagine what it is like to to feel so cut off from something so so part of him we were saying yesterday you know even that word parent right that word parent is it implies two people doesn't it and and the question is i've lost part of myself as well right i've lost this child and it means i've lost a piece of myself as well and i think he has that experience at multiple levels uh, and for you, uh, losing what would have been the the way you would usually soothe yourself, it's it's this utter disorientation. You're in a in a totally different place with uh, that's that's hard to anticipate and and hard to even express sometimes. Well, this has been a great conversation. We really appreciate you giving us your time this morning, Mary Frances O'Connor. Associate Professor of Psychology, Corey Floyd, Professor of Communication at the University of Arizona. Thanks very much for taking part in this episode of our Lifetimes of Listening podcast. Thanks so much for having us. That's right. We've enjoyed it. So what's coming up on future episodes of Lifetimes of Listening? In our next episode, we'll interview a noted music theorist, and we'll discuss people's musical memories related to the special qualities of music that allow music to become so resonant for them. And in future upcoming episodes, we're going to be speaking with some talented musical performers 
about their memories of important musical influences in their careers, and also music and memorials. That's another topic we're going to look at, the ways in which music connects us to loved ones we've lost on very special memorial occasions. Those topics and more all coming up in upcoming editions of Lifetimes of Listening. So how can you get involved? You can visit our website, musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. That's musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. The Lifetimes of Listening um, website allows you to submit a musical memory of your own, either a sound file, an essay, a poem. You can even upload illustrations if you choose, or you can email us and we could interview you in person or we could um, you could suggest someone to interview. I'm Brian Moon. And I'm Dan Cruz. And that's it for this installment of Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Archive and Podcast. Thanks for being here. The executive producer of Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast, is Brian Moon. The program is produced and edited by Dan Cruz. The Lifetimes of Listening website was created by Cynthia Barlow, Principal Information Technology Manager with the University of Arizona Fred Fox School of Music. Music is from zapsplat.com and from pixabay.com. Special thanks to the Fred Fox School of Music for hosting our website and UA Marketing and Communications for helping us launch this project, the archive, and this podcast series. For more information and to get involved in our research, visit musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. This is Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast. <laughs>